0: was a very dominant um, Indian film song in my head as we were taking off from Uganda and I thought it would be the last time I stepped on that soil. Hello and Namaste.
1: This is Expulsion at 50 an oral history project using podcasts. My name is Dola Vasani. In September, 2021, I spoke to Jamila Siddiqui from her home in London. At age 20, Jamila found herself leaving Uganda without her parents and siblings. It's a story of the bird that flies away now that this world has become a stranger chal ud ja re panchhi ke apye desh hua bekhana chal ud ja re panchhi ke well i'm
0: very very thankful that i grew up there that I grew up in a country where I don't know what grown-up problems were but as a child I felt very free and free of problems and free of hassles nice weather played loved school you know we we just did school we did school very seriously because school was the only game in town there were no other distractions because if you were good at school then everybody wanted to be your friend if you were good at school, then your parents were good to you, and also you had you had to be either good academically or you had to be a brilliant sports person. I wasn't good at sports, so I, I could do the academic bit. So I'm very glad that uh, choices were simple. At the age of five, I could be missing from home all day; nobody would care, and if I got lost, somebody would bring me back. You know that kind of life that that doesn't happen anywhere in the world today. It, it's just not not possible. So I'm very glad I grew up there and I'm very glad I went to the sort of schools I went to. It was a very cushy, comfortable life.
1: So I understand that you were born in Kenya and then you
0: grew up in Uganda. Is that right? That's right. We moved. We moved from Mombasa when I was five years old, and we came to Kampala. And uh, we lived in Kampala. I lived in Kampala about 10 years, and then my father was transferred to Jinja. Do Do you know, like, when they first went to East Africa? Yeah, after partition in India. So Kenya being a crown colony of the British, the British were very actively recruiting Indians in the teaching professions and the civil service, and also because uh, they had a need for people who who spoke English. The East African migration was a very different one. There was round one, which was all the uh, railway, people attached to the railway and providers and merchants and so on. The second migration, which was like in the uh, late 30s, early 40s, was very much about civil servants teachers educators lawyers barristers people who had been at the bar in london and you know that sort of exchange it was a it was a second tier you're literally from one colony to another where the need was so in in terms of the partition where were your parents on which side were they they were in hyderabad dakkhan which is of course india you know southern part of india and um, Pakistan was being formed, but um, my family remained in India, there we were Muslims, we were Indian Muslims, but they didn't see any point in a state carved out just for on religious grounds. It never works, we know that. And then not only that, the, the actual uh, partition, my father believed would would create more extremism, both sides, more nationalism, and he thought the safest thing would be to, go out completely and people were going to West Africa to Central Africa so that's quite a quite a a brave thing to do huh it was a different time people moved easily Um, and almost all our friends were people who had come from some part of India pre-partition and had chosen to go to Nigeria or Ghana Botswana you know you just name it and they were um they were there and See, what kind have, of school was it, Jamila? It was a community school. At that time, if they called it like it was a, it's now called the Jafar Academy, but at that time it was like a private Shari Shia Shari school. Um, the British policy in Kenya had been to encourage communities to have their own schools. So they had a broad category called Indian schools, because the interesting thing is. Um, apartheid was not um, uh, drafted into the constitution, but the de facto, it was apartheid. They wanted what, what we effectively can call separate development, which is exactly the meaning of apartheid. So they wanted Indians to have their own schools and, you know.
1: Yeah, and as you say, you know, as part of empire and part of the colonies, it was a fertile recruiting ground. Eh?
0: Mm, and India, because it was an older colony and the Raj had already instilled all these... Uh, you know british values british type of things and my father was like the english grammar you know expert i've still got his books and there was a lot uh, there was a lot they provided for teachers that would be unthinkable now we lived in beautiful houses um, provided by the employers we hardly ever paid rent or utility bills or anything like that everything was just laid on yeah, I think it's just about, you know, the value of the profession, isn't it? It was something that was like, um, it was a rare commodity, which it no longer is, you know, having people who could educate you was, uh, you know, was was something that was wanted. And teachers were, I was aware of being somebody, because you had a status, if you were from a teaching family, believe it or not, you had a kind of uh, people treated you like you had some kind of aura. Came straight to Kampala, it was a contract with the Aga Khan Education Foundation. Mm -hmm. And this time he took a job at the Aga Khan School, which again, you see under the British policy, Uganda was a protectorate, it wasn't a crown colony. Under that British imperial policy, again, this was the uh, communities were encouraged to have their own schools, but the Aga Khan School was modeled on a British grammar school as As always, they had a policy of um, being inclusive. So even though it, they had been set up as an exclusively Indian school, they welcomed African children non-Ismaili children uh, children of diplomats. So in my class, the Italian ambassador's daughter, the Norwegian ambassador's daughter, the, you know, there was a number of uh, so you know you got exposure to a lot of cultures.
1: I believe the Aga Khan schools were the first to be, what we call,
0: multiracial or multicultural. Yeah, and the the community as a whole, it was, uh, you know, it, it had some kind of special dispensation, you know, whereas the other Indian schools had to run as Indian schools. The Aga Khan school did not, on its curriculum, teach Indian languages or Indian culture, or any of that. They ran exactly as British grammar schools. You know, you could have, you could on the on the extracurricular, you could have ballet, you could have piano, but you try saying sitar or you try saying Indian dance, you wouldn't get it. But in the other government schools run by communities in, in Kenya, for instance, my husband grew up in the Kenya highlands, and uh, they could do an O-level in Gujarati if they wanted, or Hindi, or... You know, Urdu. I mean, that that just in Aga Khan School, you were not allowed to be overheard speaking what they called the vernacular. There was a fine if you were overheard with your friends giggling in Gujarati or Punjabi. It was just not done. (laughs) And how would you describe your family life? Uh, We were aware, and actually I have friends now from Uganda who often comment that, you know, oh, yours was the only family that had African guests to dinner and, you know, Um, because, you know, we we never had that thing of we had white friends, Korean friends, Japanese friends, whichever nationality was there. And we had a lot of African friends. It wasn't about their race. It was about, uh, you know, common interests or liking the same thing. Or we had neighbors that we socialized with. But we were aware that most um, Indians kept themselves to themselves. But what was very good? about the Indian community as a whole was it was very, very united. It now seems like a distant dream when you look at the current situation in the UK, but the, the differences that, you know, we went to the Gurdwara, we, we visited events in the Jamaat Khanna. Um, a lot of my Hindu friends came to the mosque, uh, not the mosque, but the, the, to listen to the, the kind of uh, discourses during Muharram Um, There was a lot of give and take. During Ramadan, there were a lot of parties at each other's houses and your non-Muslim friends never invited you to lunch during Ramadan. They knew. They wouldn't even ask. They'd invite you for the evening to break your fast. There was a lot of unspoken understanding um, because most of them were fresh from the shock of partition. and this was one place where you could really have that harmony. I, I grew up celebrating Diwali, celebrating just every, everything that was being celebrated, we celebrated.
1: So after completing your high school and your A-levels, you chose to go to university at Makrere in Uganda.
0: Makrere was for Uganda citizens only, which I was. Um, you were fully funded. The Uganda government paid everything, including giving you an allowance and a separate book allowance that could only be uh, traded in the bookshop. Um, and it was all set, nothing could be better. There was at McRae, there was some very high flying academics there. There was some very, you know, it, had, it was like a top university. In the, you know, it was twinned with Cambridge, with one of the Cambridge colleges. And um, uh, yeah, everything was fine, life was great. And while on that campus, I would walk around and look at all the professor's houses and think I'll have that one. No, I'll have that one when, you know, that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to study, then study further, then become a lecturer professor at my career. It's a great life, everything done for you, nice weather, nothing to worry about. And I just thought, well, I'll become a professor and I'll write lots of fat books to get even with all those who wrote the books I had to keep reading. So that was that was my life's vision.
1: Okay, and then 1972 Cops. Yeah. And then the announcement is made. So what do you remember
0: of that time? I remember thinking, well, that doesn't affect me because he's asking British Asians to go. I'm not British, I'm Ugandan. Um, so they had been given ninety days um and I just assumed it was British passport holders only. I had a Ugandan I had Ugandan documents, so did my father. Um, so I just carried on <laughs> and then. Then they announced that uh, every Asian in the country had to present themselves for verification. This verification process was so they could confirm whether you're staying or you have to get out. This verification process was an afterthought because once the euphoria had died down of hey great we're kicking them out, they suddenly thought what are we going to do for doctors, teachers. (laughs) So the verification, really, they pretended it was for your immigration status, but actually it was for your status status. I was in Makrere, which is in Kampala. My parents were in Jinja. So we were not verified together as a family. We were verified separately. I was over 18 anyway. My parents and my brothers, who were then much younger, you know, 12 and 7, something like that. My parents and my brothers, uh, my my parents, they got the the stamp that says they can remain indefinitely. Because of course my father's a teacher and my brothers are his dependents, as is my mother. I was verified separately and told I had to go. And at this point it was 30 days to go to the deadline because I had spent two months not worrying, not even presenting myself for verification because I thought, what for? I've got a Ugandan passport.
1: So there you are, you're a student, you're over 18, you're in, in Kampala, your parents are in Jinja with, with your younger siblings, they get the stamp to say that they can remain because of his, his profession, and you as a student are told that you had
0: to leave. They don't just get a stamp saying they can remain, they, they are effectively told they must remain. Stamp his passport, they okay everything, and then they take it in they take it in, which is effectively, you know, you can't leave. But then having done that, yeah, you'll get it back in a few days. We just have to process this, that and the other. Would you like a bigger house? Literally, they got offered a bigger house as all these big houses were coming up.
1: Let's just stay with your, your, your story then. So you go to, the, to get your passport verified and then they look at it and they say you, you, could, you had to leave. Is that right? And then what happened?
0: He looked at it, he ripped it, he threw it to the floor, and then said to me, Give me your passport. And I said, You just, you just, it's there. You know, you don't argue with a machine gun. That was literally, they didn't even say I had to go. He literally crumpled up my passport and threw it, and then said, Right, so you have to go. Mm -hmm. Then what happened? I went into a daze. I went back to university and I asked, um, I went to see the dean of my department, an English guy. I spoke to him and uh, he put the word about, he wrote a letter to, they were twinned with Cambridge, so he wrote a letter there um, and then he, um, and then I got um, a message from him saying, look, I have a PhD student here whose mother-in-law lives in London. And if you end up going there, she's very, very, very keen to have a Ugandan um, refugee in her house. She's um, from India, has been in Britain many years and would like would like ideally a Ugandan refugee who can teach her to speak Urdu. You then communicate with your
1: parents, I'm assuming, that this is what's happening.
0: No, because the phone lines are down and there's no petrol for me to get a lift to Jinja. There's a, a crowded bus, but times are not safe. There's still a sort of semi-curfew on. It's not... It's not safe to travel unaccompanied, and uh, there are roadblocks between towns. Um, I try. I keep trying to phone. I keep trying to phone. Phones are not that widespread. Like there's one phone in my hall of residence downstairs, and you need to sort of, you know, bribe several people to get access to it. It's not easy at all.
1: So then, what about the funds to get
0: get the ticket and to to get out? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, the, the day I went to the bank, they were closed. Another day I went to say, look, I am allowed to take this much out, 50 sterling or whatever. Um, They had run out. They said they can't print anymore. They haven't got ink or something. But all of that. All of that. It was Kafkaesque. It was surreal. One of my father's former students, who was now a businessman, he, I didn't know him, but... Uh, somehow message went because my parents must have realized you know how is she going to do it what's going to happen what's you know I had managed to get a message to them that I've been told to leave so this student came to see me at Macrere African student very nice guy my father used to teach him some years ago he just came he cried he gave me an envelope full of money and he he cried and he said I never thought I'd be doing this for you it was all very, but I was in such a daze. I'm only now sort of get, recognizing the the sort of poignancy of that. But yeah, he just gave me the money, and said, "I wish I didn't have to." In other words, you know, I wish you weren't going. And similarly, you know, at the airport as well, there was a soldier who was who recognized me. He was also a former student of my father. Very, very kind you know, was as kind as he could be, because I was still trying to phone home, but the phone box at the airport, I just didn't have, you know, I I had no money. So what could I, he gave me, he gave me some coins and said, yeah, go and phone. I didn't get through, it wasn't working. And then I gave him the number and I said, look, if you get a chance, can you phone and tell them that I've gone on flight this and this?
1: And then uh, Jamila, if your passport was torn up, how were you, what, what travel
0: document did you have then? I had a refugee status finally issued by the British High Commission. And do you remember, Jamila, what date you left? Yes, I left on the 1st of November.
1: And how old were you? Twenty. Okay, so it's the beginning of November, you're 20 years old, you know, you've got this letter with you, you have a travel document, you get on a plane, it's, you've never been on a
0: plane before, so, and then what happens? Then we are told that the plane was supposed to go to Stansted, but it's too foggy, all these are just names for me, it's too foggy, so they're going to land at Heathrow. Um... All I remember is coming out of the plane and thinking, oh God, this is like a fridge, because I'd never experienced anything below 75 Fahrenheit. And we entered this terminal building and there was a whole array of volunteer ladies handing out coats, um, scarves, you know, various things.
1: After a couple of days in a refugee camp in Kensington, Jamila finds herself in Hampstead staying with an Indian family.
0: And yeah, that worked out very well for me. It cushioned a lot of the blow because I was then in a very, very nice house with very nice people. Her children were roughly my age, a bit older. they both left home, um, um, still very much in my life.
1: you go to university you get your degree then you you know start you know your life post post university whatever that looks like
0: and then what happens to uganda and all of this i had put it out of my head completely totally dismissed it utterly and completely and just i i had just gone into another existence it's like it feels very weird now but i must have spent from 72 to 75 in some kind of total days functioning but now I look back on it with some age and maturity I I realize it must I must have felt totally uprooted living, living another existence.
1: And Jamila tell us about the process of writing your first novel The Feast of
0: Nine Virgins. What happened was I just put it out of my head for years and years and years and years And then one day, some 30 years after it, I was writing a novel about something completely different and into it crept all these characters that I realized. um, um, It literally is like that. I didn't write them, I didn't plan them, I didn't think them. I was writing a jolly little story about a, a film documentary crew, you know, very comical story. And into that crept all these characters from Uganda, including a dictator. And I remember pacing up and down in the garden, thinking, what shall I do with them? Why are they trying to come into this story? And then I thought, I'll just write it anyway. And then it all gelled, it fitted into my main stories. I don't know how it happened, but I mean, after 35 years, 30 years of just nothing, 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 I'm writing a novel and all this creeps in and so much of that expulsion stuff crept in. I couldn't believe it. I have no memory of writing that novel, but it was all over and done with. It was with a publisher in four months. So that all then gets played into the book.
1: But what happens to Jamila in that process? Like, how was that for you?
0: Very cathartic. Very, um, because I I have not, apart from one or two, I've not written many factual articles about Uganda or anything. Um, The only way I can deal with that is through fiction, because fiction is very powerful. Fiction can tell the real story in a way that the history book can't.
1: People are going to listen to to your podcast, to your
0: story, what would you like them to take away? I think the the one thing I have learned is that you have to hold on to your own integrity and the the physical place that you're in should not change the essential who you are, should not change the essence of the person. You know, if if you want to flourish and want you do so anywhere in any surrounding. don't change your you don't change your perception because the reality changes you hold on you hold on to that idealism i think for me the most important thing that got me through because remember coming here coming to britain and people often ask me how did you feel and i have to be very honest it wasn't strange because i grew up in a british colony and you know it's not i came here and had a shock yeah the weather was a shock doing housework was a big shock because that's because you know we were spoiled i mean i should have known how to do washing, but we didn't do it you know it wasn't part of the psyche um but there is there is that thing where you you belong you always belong wherever you are but the more rooted you are in your own cultural origins the stronger it is and the, the more readily the host culture accepts you in a strange sort of way i reject a lot of those indian cultural values but holding on to the knowledge, the history, the languages actually strengthens you. The whole way colonialism works is by undermining your languages. You cannot subjugate a people until you tell them their language and culture are rubbish. The way to fight that very quietly is to remain very rooted in your language, your culture, your knowledge of your culture. You don't have to follow your culture, but you have to remain rooted in in who you are, where you come from.
1: What a great story. I hope you enjoyed listening to Jamila. Please share it with your friends and family. And uh, till next time, be well and be safe.